And Lord, as we turn our hearts now to your word, we pray you give us ears to hear, give us hearts to believe uh, and to understand what it is you say to us. And I pray that we would respond with obedience for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat, and I might celebrate with my friends, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He's our Savior. He's the one hope of all the nations. And Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever walked the face of the earth. And like many great teachers, Jesus primarily taught by telling stories. What we've just heard is one of the most powerful and complex of all the stories that Jesus tells. And he first told this story to a rowdy crowd of spiritual seekers, religious fanatics, and notorious sinners. It helps us to think about the setting in which Jesus originally told this story. So I want to read you a couple verses from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. These are not in your bulletin, so if you have your Bible, you can flip it open to Luke chapter 15, verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay, you can just listen. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2 say this. Now the tax collectors and sinners 
We're all drawing near to hear him. That is to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is talking to a crowd. He's ministering to a crowd. And in the crowd, there are really two kinds of sinners. There are sinners who know they are sinners and sinners who think they are righteous. The sinners who know they are sinners are the ones that the text calls tax collectors and sinners in verse 1. And it's important to not romanticize these people. These people were despised in their culture. And I'm sure some of those that are labeled tax collectors and sinners were just misunderstood souls that had had hard lives. But that wasn't the case for everybody. Understand that in this cultural context, for a Jewish person to become a Roman tax collector essentially means they had to decide, I love money more than I love God and neighbor. And most of them became wealthy by exploiting others. So the reason they were despised in the community was because they chose to despise other people, to dishonor God and to exploit others for their own gratification. But the amazing thing throughout the Gospels is these These kinds of folks who are notorious sinners, who knew they were sinners, and everybody knew they were sinners, when they encounter Jesus, the Holy One, they're drawn to Him. There's something about the authority of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the justice of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, that draws sinners to Him. Some of them hang out with Him for a while and undoubtedly go back to their old way of life, but many of them are transformed, like Matthew the tax collector or Zacchaeus the tax collector. Meanwhile, verse 2 has the other category of people, sinners who think they're righteous. And the Pharisees and scribes, we need to understand, these were the people who were most devoted to studying and carefully obeying God's Word. They cared about obedience to God's Word. They cared about teaching God's Word. And they are angry at Jesus here. They're grumbling against Him precisely because they think they're blasph- that Jesus is blaspheming God and dishonoring God's holiness by claiming to be a prophet and then eating with tax collectors and his sinners as if they are his equals. In the crowd, there's two kinds of sinners. And Jesus tells this story because he wants both kinds of sinners to know about God's love. He wants both kinds of sinners to know that God loves them and that God's love is calling them home. In fact, if you want a title for this sermon, the title is Come Back Home. Everybody say, Come Back Home. To understand the story that Jesus tells, we need to pay attention to all three of the main characters, which are named in verse 11. Let's look at that verse. It says, and Jesus said, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, a man who had two sons. We need to pay attention to the man and both of the sons. The most important character in this story is not either the sons, it's the father. The father loves both of his sons. He loves them with a shocking, scandalous love. He loves them with a love that is not calculating. He loves them in a way that is overflowing with abundant generosity and mercy, which would have certainly seemed as imprudent and foolish to many of the people listening to stories. But of course, the father in this story represents God. And the story is being told by Jesus, the God-man. God is saying to us, I'm like this father. And then there's two sons. The most important thing to say about the sons is actually that they're both loved by their father. 
The second most important thing to say about these two sons is that each of them has his own way of not being at home in his father's love. Each of them has his own way of avoiding the father's love. We can begin to see the two ways by noting that three, these three characters um, are situated in a, in a setting that involves three important places. Jesus does a lot of uh, careful and powerful things with place and space and setting in this story. But the three most important places are the father's house, the far country, and the fields. The father's house, the far country, and the fields. The father's house is the place of life with God. The Father's house is the place of security and peace and abundance when we learn to abide in God's love. In fact, you could just say the Father's house is love. Everybody say abide in love. That's one of our themes this month. Abide in love. Learn how to live at home in God's love is what we're studying and that's what this parable is about. The younger son avoids living in God's love by breaking the rules in a vain effort to find fulfillment in all the wrong places, which is basically the story of pretty much all of our lives. His life is a life of self-expression and self-assertion, which leads to an almost complete destruction of his true and authentic self. The older brother is very different from his younger brother. He keeps all the rules. He's dutiful. He's hardworking. He cares about responsibility and community. And yet, he's proud and he's angry and he's hypercritical. And all of that reveals that he does not know how to live in his father's house. So both have life strategies that are alienating them from God. Both need to learn how to repent and live in love. In the parable, God is saying to all of us, come home. Celebrate. Learn to feast in your father's house. Surrender to love. Rest in love. God is saying to you today, abide in my love. Come home. Now, I'm going to just walk through this story verse by verse. We're going to meditate on it as we go. But as I do that, I'm going to encourage you to think about three questions. You might want to jot down these questions from the beginning. First question, what is God teaching me about his love? As we walk through this story... Ask the question, what is God teaching me about his love? Second question, what is God teaching me about myself? I want to suggest to you that one of the themes of this parable is when we run away from God's love, we also lose ourselves and we forsake all of our relationships with one another. So the call to come back home is also a call to find your true self. What is God teaching me about myself? And what is God teaching me about the way that he wants me to relate to other people? After all, the inciting incident of this story is some people that were grumbling because they were mad at God being gracious to people that they despised. What is God teaching me about his love? What is God teaching me about myself? And what is God teaching me about the way he wants me to relate to other people? With those questions in mind, I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads for a second. And one more time, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and teach you today. And then we'll continue studying the word. Our Father, we ask one more time that your Holy Spirit would help us to have minds that are awake and attentive and focused and hearts that are soft and moldable 
not before me, but before your holy word. Help us all, strengthen us to know your love and to come home to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus tells us first about the younger son. And we read about him beginning in verse 12 through 13. Look at that verse with me. It says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. You might underline those two words, far country. That's one of our three important places. He took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. You need to understand just how disrespectful this young son is being. To say, give me my share of the inheritance now is basically to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. And I don't want to wait till you get sick and old to enjoy your stuff. I wish you were dead now. So give me all your possessions. I'm going to take your stuff and I'm going to enjoy them as far away from you as possible. I'm going to a far country. It's hard to imagine a son saying anything more hurtful and disrespectful to a father than that. And the insult and injury are both increased when we remember this is a society without social security and without nursing homes. Which means older people are dependent for their survival and their thriving on having competent and capable, faithful children. Which means the son, the younger son is showing disdain not only for his father, but also for his older brother by leaving the responsibility of caring for the father and the father's household to the younger, to the older brother alone. He would have brought shame on the whole family through this actions, through this uh, choice. And when he does this, the question is, how, how, would, how would you respond as a father? What would you do? How would you respond as an older brother? I've told you the most important character in this story is the father. And the father is also the most shocking character in the story. We see his response in the second half of verse 12. Look at it again. And he divided his property between them. He just did what the younger son asked. This father is not acting with prudence. This father is not being responsible. To say he divided his inheritance means, in this cultural context, he split it up. Probably the older son would have got two-thirds of his property. The younger son would have got one-third. But though the father is dead, he takes it and says, it's yours now. He just signs it over. So the father, at this point, basically owns nothing. The older son gets two-thirds of his property. The younger son gets one-third. Interestingly, there, there were Jewish wisdom texts circulating at this time that said specifically, don't do this. Don't give away your inheritance too soon. It's, it's too foolish. How are you going to survive? The father is not acting prudently. Fiduciary responsibility doesn't seem to be the father's strong point. As a matter of fact, someone might need to read to this father the words of Proverbs thirteen fourteen, which says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Maybe younger brother just needs a whooping. Or we might want to read to him 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not. What? Let him not eat. Those are both in the Bible. The father's not being responsible. We might too, with our sophistication, want to 
lecture the father about the times when helping hurts. Maybe your extravagant mercy and generosity isn't really mercy and generosity at all, father. Maybe by being a pushover and allowing the younger son to walk all over you, you're just enabling him in his sin. The only problem with everything that I'm just saying is that the father is God. And this story is being told by Jesus, who is God in the flesh. So instead of maybe, instead of quoting scriptures at him, we should just keep reading the story. But it should be clear from this point that the older brother had his reasons for resentment. Little brother has left me with the sole responsibility of caring for dad in our old age. And dad, who has always been overindulgent to little brother, now keeps letting him walk all over him. This foolish old man lets little brother bring shame on him and on and on our whole family. It's like he doesn't even care about me. Now, before you accuse me of blasphemy, I would like to clarify that I don't believe the words that I just said. God is not a pushover. He's not foolish. He's holy and he's wise and he's sovereign. But I'm trying to help you understand that it's actually not that hard to get inside the head of a Pharisee. Most of us live inside the head of a Pharisee every day. At any rate, big brother is not wrong about little brother. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. It says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and never him anything. This portion of the story, these verses are one of the most profound demonstrations of the nature of sin in all of Scripture. If you want to know what evil is and what sin is, these verses are very helpful. We just said the Father's house is the place of abiding in God's abundant provision and grace. We also just said the Father's house is love. So the question is, why does this son want to run away from God's love? We could ask ourselves the question, why do you do it? Why do I do it? Why do human beings run away from God's love? That's what sin is. There's probably several answers, but let's just mention two. First reason is, we really do tend to think that God's gifts can make us happier than God can. We really like all the fun stuff in life that God has made, and sometimes we feel like we would really be able to enjoy it if God wasn't so intrusive. We tend to think that creation is more capable of satisfying us than the creator. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.25. He describes the folly of human sinfulness in this way. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Whatever you're looking to to give satisfaction and meaning and purpose for your life is your functional God. And when you turn from God... To created things and say, this is going to satisfy me. This is going to give hope and meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment to my life. That's idolatry. It's turning from the truth to a lie. The truth is, God is the only one who can satisfy our thirsty souls. And the truth is, when we know God, we also get to enjoy all God's good gifts. All of creation is God giving himself to us in love. That was last week. 
The reality is that when we run away from God, not only do we lose God, but we lose his gifts. And before long, we find ourselves in a far country. All the things that we thought could satisfy have lost their power to satisfy. We've experienced the law of diminishing returns and we're desperate and we're lonely and we are alienated, coveting pig slop. But there's a second reason we run away from love. First is because we think God's gifts are going to be better at satisfying than God is. But the second is this. We would rather be our own boss. See, the thing is, love forms us. Love makes us. Love shapes us. Love creates us. Love completes us. Love makes us free. But for many of us, we would just rather create ourselves. We would rather shape ourselves. We would rather make ourselves. We would rather chart our own path to freedom. We're addicted to a drug called self-determination. And we were all born with that addiction. It's called original sin. We want to be autonomous, which means we want to be a law to ourselves. And 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. So the son is running to what he thinks it'll make him happy. He's running away from what will make him happy to go to the things that he thinks will make him happy. And he's running away from what he thinks of as bondage and limitation to what he thinks of as freedom and self-determination. But the reality is he's running from freedom to a self-imposed prison. What I'm trying to say, though, is however we think about it, human sinfulness is always an attempt to live apart from God's love. Which sounds like a crazy idea. Why would you want to live apart from God's love? And the reason it sounds like a crazy idea is because it is a crazy idea. Sin is madness. Now, I want you to think for a second about whatever sin you struggle with. I don't know what it is that you're struggling with these days. Maybe it's gossip and slander. Maybe you've been angry and critical towards people in your family or people at your workplace. Maybe it's sins of the flesh. Sexual sin, lust, substance abuse, whatever it might be. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's selfish ambition. I'm trying to get significance and fulfillment out of my career. Whatever it is, it's saying, I'm going to be a law to myself instead of letting God's love form me. And it's saying, I'm going to find happiness my own way, trying to take one of God's good gifts and enjoy it apart from God. And it's madness. It's self-defeating. And yet this story we can all relate to because it's like the story of the human condition. And the scariest part of sin is that if you try long and hard enough to run away from love, you might succeed. The horrible victory of rebellion, the triumph of sin, is a state of complete lovelessness. It's the outer darkness in which our hatred towards God and one another ultimately also becomes hatred towards ourself. It's like a consuming fire. But the younger son doesn't go quite that far. He gets close. He's alienated from everybody. He's starving to death. No one will give him any food. And he hits what we call rock bottom. Anybody ever hit rock bottom? Don't raise your hand. Some of us know about rock bottom. If you fall a long way and hit rock bottom, that hurts. But the thing about it is when you get there, at least you have firm ground to stand on. And the saving grace that this son experiences is that he has never quite been able to suppress the truth of his father's house. When you're living a life of self-indulgence or self-assertion or self-determination and you're 
doing pretty well at it, it's easy to suppress the truth of your father's house. But when you hit rock bottom, reality has a way of reasserting itself with redemptive power and possibility. So this son hits rock bottom. He has been haunted by the memory of his father's love, by the truth that his father's house wasn't actually a place of enslavement. It was a place of abundant peace and generosity and welcome. He's been trying to suppress it, and now it's hit him, and that is what saves his life. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, I love those words. Everybody say, he came to himself. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants... Have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This moment is the beginning of repentance. The memory of God's love, the memory of his father's house made it possible I say this is the beginning of repentance because repentance, as some of us know well, is usually not a moment, it's a journey. And the son is about to have to go on a long journey back home, from the far country, back to the father's house. But this is the beginning of the process. He's ready to make a full confession. And I love the way verse 17 says it. He came to himself. Now, this is just an English translation of a Greek idiom. It could be translated, he came to his senses. But this more literal and wooden re, uh, rendering of the ESV makes me happy because the phrase, he came to himself, powerfully suggests the reality of the situation that when he wandered away from his father's house, he lost himself also. He wandered away from himself. The irony is that probably he thought when he was running away from all the responsibility and commitments and obligations of his father's house, he was running to find himself. That's what he thought. But the truth is, nobody has ever found themselves by running away from God's love and suppressing the truth. So now, rock bottom and the memory of his father's house brings a moment of sanity. Repentance is the beginning of recovering a true self. Repentance is self-recollection. It's the beginning of self-knowledge. It's the beginning of authenticity. The somewhat humiliating experience of coming back to himself allows hope to blossom as he sees the truth about himself and the truth about him, his father. Here's what I want you to hear. Sin makes us fake. Repentance makes us real. Did you hear that? Let's say it. Everybody say sin makes us fake. Repentance makes us real. When we comfort each other, when we sin, if I if you sin or I sin, let's say you sin and. And I try to comfort you by saying, it's okay, you're only human. My impulse to comfort you was good, but what I just said was exactly false. The truth is that sin obscures our humanity. Sin hides our humanity. Repentance and the redemptive grace of God is what restores it. So now, he started on this journey to repentance, and it continues in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I want you to look closely at the five verbs describing the father's actions in verse 20. See verse 20. First verb. The father saw his son. Jesus is saying to us, to each of you individually in this room, God sees you. Maybe nobody else does, but God sees you. Second verb, the father felt compassion for his son. So Jesus is saying to us, God grieves with you in your pain, even if it's all your fault. Everything the son was suffering was self-inflicted. But Jesus is saying, God grieves with you and cares about you even in your totally self-inflicted pain, as well as the pain other people have inflicted on you. Third verb, the father ran to his son. Now, this is more powerful if we understand something that isn't quite true in our culture. But in this cultural context, a man of this father's age is not supposed to run. That is culturally taboo. It would have been seen as actually a shameful action. If you're as old as this father, you've got sons and servants to run for you. You don't run. But the father doesn't care about any of this. This love is an undignified, seeking and saving love. And he runs to his son. And Jesus is saying to us, if you in this moment are wanting to repent, that's because God already loves you. And if you start a process of Repentance, just know God's probably going to wrap you up in his embrace before you even finish repenting. Which leads to the fourth and fifth verbs in verse 20. The father embraces and kisses his son, which is just Jesus saying, God is eager to pour out on you lavish affection. The most sentimental spiritual tripe that you've heard is not as deeply moving as the theological truth of the Bible. God wants to pour out lavish affection on you and embrace you. I love the fact that in verse 21, the son starts giving his speech, but the father doesn't seem to notice. The father doesn't seem to care about this well-rehearsed confession speech. Actually, this speech is shorter than the one that occurred to him earlier, which means the father probably interrupts him. And I kind of wonder if that annoyed the son just a little bit. Because you know, on that long walk home, he practiced this speech like a thousand times, right? And he was picturing it. And when I get there, dad's going to be looking all mean and firm and stern. And I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to give this whole speech. And as I pour out my eloquent humility, the firmness on father's face is going to slowly melt. and He's going to see me with pity. And then I can only hope what will happen on the other side of that. But none of it happens. Dad doesn't even let him finish his speech. He just starts talking and dad gives him a bear hug. Son's still trying to... Express how humiliated he is and how sorry he is. And dad starts calling on servants. Judah, bring a ring. Abraham, put a robe on him. Put shoes on his feet. My son was dead and he's alive. It's time for a party. This is a beautiful moment, isn't it? Most of us don't just don't believe that God is like that. It's a beautiful moment. It's saying to us, God's love is a seeking and finding love. 
God's love is a seeing and feeling love. It's an embracing and celebrating love. It's a love that doesn't wait for you to finish your well-rehearsed confession speeches. It's a love that meets you when you're not even halfway on the journey of repentance yet and embraces you. Everybody's happy right now, and we could end the sermon right here, except the parable's not over yet. So let's keep reading. Let's find the one person that isn't happy, starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28 is so important. Pay attention to this. But he was angry and refused to go in. Verse 25 told us he's in the field and he refuses to go in the house. He's angry, but his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he refuses to call him his brother. Notice doesn't say when my brother came home, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older brother is out in the field working. The field is a place of duty. It's a place of discipline. It's a place of responsibility. He's out in the field working and he hears the sounds of celebration. In the father's house is a celebration. Part of what annoys some of us about God is that God is always partying. God is celebrating and everything is very serious and everything is very messed up. And that's inappropriate in this situation, right? That's what the brother's mad about when he hears the party and then he hears the cause of the party. He's angry. But in verse 28, notice not only does the father go out to the younger son, the father goes out to meet the older son where he is. Part of what this parable is doing is teaching us to have compassion for self-righteous, angry, religious hypocrites. Which is glorious if we happen to be self-righteous, angry, religious hypocrites. But it's also helpful if we happen to know any of them. Jesus is saying, God comes out to meet you too, Pharisee and scribe. The Father comes out to meet him and invite him into the party. There's a party right here. There's joy waiting for you right here. The kingdom of God has come. God's grace is invading the brokenness of the world. Just come home. But the son's angry and his speech has several things to say. I've been serving you for years. I've never disobeyed your commandments. And what have you ever given me? Now, at this point, I can imagine one or two faithful Pharisees being touched on a nerve. Maybe they get very angry. Maybe some of them get a little misty-eyed and start to feel seen. We know some Pharisees are going to repent. We've read about Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus. Jesus understands their psychology better than they understand it themselves. He understands our psychology better than we understand it ourselves. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were the people who tried hardest to please God. I'm going to try harder to do it right. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to obey. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm trying harder and harder 
but I'm getting angry. I'm angry at you because you're not doing it right. I'm angry at me because I don't do it as right as I pretend to do it. And I'm angry at God because who else's fault is, this, is it that this universe is messed up like this? The Pharisees, at this point, might have had prayers start welling up in their hearts kind of like this. God, you left us in exile. You left us in exile for so long. But then when our fathers repented and came home, they rebuilt the temple. But ever since then, our, our history has been a history of devastation after devastation. The temple we worship now was built by Herod the blasphemer. And it feels like we're still in exile. We need another exodus. The people are in disarray. We're the ones who built the synagogues with our blood, sweat and tears. We're the ones who are teaching your people to obey your word. And by the way, a lot of the stuff you said to Moses was very unclear. So we've clarified it. We've added a lot of interpretive tradition so that the confused common masses can know what you expect of them. We've sacrificed everything to follow you, God. You haven't sent the Messiah we're waiting for. Rome is just as bad as Babylon and Assyria and Persia. You haven't heard our prayers. Do you even care? And then when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. That rant might feel a little familiar for some of us in our own head. The father could have responded in a lot of ways. Jesus could have put words in the father's house and the father's mouth here that would have reminded the Pharisees and the scribes about all God's faithfulness shown over all those centuries of rebellion. Or he could have shown them, which he does in other places, about the brokenness of their own hearts. You may keep the externals of the law, but your hearts are far from me. Or he could have tried hard to show them how desperately they need the same grace that the other brothers need. The other brother needs the tax collectors and the sinners. But that's not how the father responds. If you want to know how the father responds, look at verse 31. And he said to him, son, son, that's your identity. Tired Christian who feels like you're trying hard, but it's never enough. And you're starting to get a little grumpy about it. God is saying, you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son whom I love. Son, person here who is not a Christian yet, who's spiritually seeking, but has been trying really hard to be good and feels frustrated and exhausted. God's saying, you can relax. Jesus paid the price. Just trust him and you can know this identity. Son, daughter. He says, son, you are always with me. Tired, exhausted person who's been trying to do the right thing, but it feels like it's never enough, and you're angry at God, and you're angry at yourself, and you're angry at everybody else. The Father is saying this. Jesus is saying to you right now, here today, this. God has never left you a day of your life. He's never left you a day of your life. He's always with you. He's always loved you. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. That was literally true for this son. Do you remember the second half of verse 12? 
The father already split the property. He gave one-third to the younger son, two-thirds to the older son. So now, really, the father's living in the son's house. Which is to say, not only could you have asked me for a calf at any time, but you don't even have to ask me. The goats are yours, the calves are yours, it's all yours. Everything that I have is yours. And if you're here and it's hard for you to believe that God loves you and you're trying to do the right thing, but it doesn't work and you're mad at other people and you're mad at yourself because you know you're not as good as you want to think you are and you're mad at God because you've been trying to do the right thing and it never works. How does it make you feel for God to say to you, all that I have is yours? That's radical generosity. Struggling Christian, exhausted moralist, any of us that are feeling tired and angry. It's like Jesus is daring the Pharisees and us to just relax. Everybody turn to your neighbor, say relax. He's saying God's love is ours. Come on in from the party. There's literally a party right here. Okay, so the faraway country was way over there. The field is right here and the party's right there. See what I'm saying? There's a way to run away from God's love if you live your whole life right next to it trying to do the right thing. But Christianity is not about drudgery. It's not about your drudgery. It's about God's party. The gospel is not about your discipline. It's about God's party. If the younger brother shows us that we struggle to rest in God's love sometimes because we think other stuff will make us happier, the older brother shows us that some people struggle to rest in God's love because we are trying really hard to do everything right so that we can feel like it's okay and we keep not succeeding and then we keep trying harder. And what God is trying to say to us is it's going to be okay not because of how good you do but because of how loving I am and what I've done in and through Jesus Christ. Hear this word spoken to God, from God to the older son and to you. You look tired, but I really love you. Why don't you come inside? We've got a lot of good stuff in here. We could have a party. You don't have to set the table. You don't have to clean up afterwards. Some of you get stressed by parties. Amen? Because <laughs> you know the young, younger son's going to eat the food but not do the dishes. Right? And God's saying, come on inside. We got a lot of great stuff here. You don't have to do anything. I'll do it all. Actually, I've got like myriads of angels and they love event planning. They love to celebrate you coming in and relaxing. So just come on in. Verse 32, the father ends with this word. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. God is a seeking and finding God. He's a God of resurrection. He's a God who comes to us in the midst of our brokenness. Whether it's the self-indulgent, self-asserting, self-expressive kind or the dutiful, angry kind. He comes to us in the midst of our brokenness, seeking and finding. And he says, just enter into my joy. It's free. It's free. Verse 32 is also a gentle word of rebuke to this older brother. He said, this son of yours... But the father said, your brother. Here's an important fact about the spiritual life. When we are having a hard time abiding in God's love, we tend to start getting hypercritical towards other people. Here's another important fact about the spiritual life. 
when we are judgmental and critical towards other people, that makes us hard to feel at home in God's love for us. That's a self-defeating cycle. But here's another fact about the spiritual life. When we repent of our silly self-righteousness and start believing that God loves us despite our constant struggles, our hearts begin to learn how to love other people too, and we start being more like our Father who sees sinners, has compassion on them, runs to them while they're still a long way off and embraces them. And here's another fact about the spiritual life. The more we actively move out to love and embrace other people and show them mercy and grace, even if we don't feel like it, the more our hearts open up to being able to experience God's grace and love towards us. In other words, rejecting the truth about God and ourselves traps us in a vicious and totally self-defeating cycle. But responding to God's call to come home and abide in love frees us to become human in a whole new way. Not in the far country and not in the fields, but living in our father's house. Notice this. The younger brother went farther away, but we know that he ends in the house. The older brother never went far, but the story ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know if he comes in or not. What Jesus is suggesting here is that self-indulgence and sensuality are dangerous sins, but pride and self-righteousness are more dangerous. And he leaves it to his hearers to decide how does the story end. We decide with our lives. Now, I want to end today by asking you to give your attention to the person who told the story. Not John Mark, Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus created you. Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Jesus has loved you every single day of your life. Jesus told this story and then made sure it got recorded in the Bible so that you could hear it. And he brought you here today. That wasn't an accident. Jesus is present right now. And what I'm saying is when Jesus calls you to repent of sin... He's inviting you to come home. Everybody say, come home. When Jesus sends his spirit to convict you of specific ways that you've been running away from his love, the conviction is not a condemnation. It's an invitation. Come home. When Jesus commands you to love other people in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable and might make you feel angry for a little while, he's inviting you to come home. Coming home is an act of surrender. It means trusting God's love to form your life. I don't get to make myself. I'm going to let God's love make me. It means admitting that you can never be dutiful or devoted enough to earn God's love, but He loves you anyway, and He just wants you to enter into the joy of His grace. It's an act of surrender. Coming home is going to mean being refined in the fire of holy grace. But it also means rest in God's love. It means relax. It means God's throwing a party. God's party is called grace. It's the cosmos. The universe is God's grace party. So everybody just relax. We all have different ways of being at home, struggling to be at home in God's love. Most of us tend to be more like one of these sons than the other, I don't know about you, though. Sometimes I feel like both of these guys live in my soul. 
Do you work hard to do the right thing, but then feel you're never good enough? Do you find yourself being critical of other people? Do you get angry a lot? Do you sometimes feel angry even towards God? That's the older brother in your soul. Do you tend to seek freedom, fun, significance, self-expression, even at the expense of truth and faithfulness? Are you more focused on seeking satisfaction from life than you are knowing the God who gives both life and satisfaction? You so focus on casting off restraints and finding yourself that you're in danger of losing your true self. That's the younger son. But whichever brother you are, Jesus is saying, come home, come home, come home. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come home. Join the party. Join the festival of God's holy grace, of his holy love. I know you don't deserve to come home, but Jesus paid the price on the cross. John fifteen nine. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Come home to my love. That's the call of the gospel. Would you bow your head with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for loving us with a love that is beyond our comprehension. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now and in the moments that follow as we take the Lord's Supper and as we sing. Would you call us home? Would you help us to be a people who rest in your love? Who allow it to form us and reform us and transform us? Would you help us to abide in your love to such a degree that, like Jesus, we would be people to whom notorious sinners are drawn. That we'd be a community of grace and healing and celebration. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.